to thinking, you know, maybe instead of uh, just being the guest speaker, maybe I could uh, talk, to, uh, talk to Mark about a bit of a promotion. And so that on the weekends when I'm speaking, I wonder if I might become the weekend pastor for those weekends. And I could just take over all of Mark's duties and just kind of be the pastor. And uh, I don't know how he'll feel about that, but uh, just to kind of expand my duties, if you will. And, <laughs> well, and I know as some of you are speaking, uh, thinking you're like, wow, he's finally run out of guest speaker jokes. And that's, that's true. So we're moving on to pastor jokes. And so um, if you're good with this, there, there are some changes, though. There are going to be some changes uh, when I take over on the weekends. The first one being this, surprise home inspections. Um, I just want to catch you guys doing stuff, and then I can bring it back here and use it in my sermons. So um, whatever, whatever's going on at your house, I'm going to have uh, some input into that. Um, I'm going to start doing weddings and funerals. Um, I'm actually going to use the same talk for both. Um, you know, something about eternity, either literal or just it feels like. And, uh, and finally... The whole kids' church thing. Um, why do they get to go down there every week and, and we're left up here? So I would institute a new rule right away. Once a month, we go downstairs. The kids stay up here. And uh, so I'm going to type that up. I'll give it to Mark, and he's going to, assumingly, take it to the board. And uh, I'll let you know how it works out. But um, we can probably start recording now. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to, wanted to introduce you to the Church of San Clemente. That's it from, uh, from the outside, obviously, and uh, if you have a minute, I'll give you a quick tour. Um, so that's how the building stands today, and it's kind of a plain-looking building from the outside. Um, but this was a church that was built in the 12th century, and was named after the fourth pope, Pope Clement, and we have a picture of him there. And I chose that picture because I, I really want to continue to send this subliminal message to you that men without hair are very devout and holy. And so <laughs> that's going to pay off. Um, but I chose this picture, sorry, that's why I chose this picture. And if you take a look at the inside of uh, the Church of San Clemente, it's very different than the outside. It, uh, it's a beautiful church, and that's the sanctuary there. We have a picture of the ceiling as well. So that's the ceiling of the Church of San Clemente. And um, what we need to realize is, although this is a beautiful church today, um, the Romans had a tendency to build things on top of other things. And so underneath this church uh, was a much smaller chapel that was built in the 4th century, and for 800 years, that smaller chapel was the Church of San Clemente, and that's where people went to worship. Um, but I can't show you any pictures of that chapel, because when they decided to build this one, they basically just knocked it down into the basement of the existing church and built on top of it. And so what they've done, archaeologists have started to dig down, and what they've discovered is they can actually remove all that rubble and find the original basement to this noblewoman's house. And what's really cool is, they've discovered that this was the location of one of these second century secret hidden house churches, one of these Christian churches that existed way back in the second century. And so if you want to see a picture of that, this would have been the, um, this would have been the sanctuary. This is where they would have met. They would have uh, sat in the rows along here. They would have uh, listened to the reading of Scripture. They would have been wowed by fantastic guest speakers, and it would have just been an amazing time in there. And then they also had what I'm guessing is kind of like the cafe, um, I'm guessing that because they don't know what it was used for, and there's some pots over there. So, um, you know, that's where they had their fantastic, um, super, uh, stupendous Saturdays and super Sundays, and I don't know where they plugged in the crock pot. Do you have a question? Rome. Sorry, Rome. Yeah, it's in Rome. And um, 
So uh, you can go there today. You can go, you can go on a tour and actually be taken down into those locations. But as I say, it was a secret church. And there's a reason it was a secret church, because they faced a great deal of persecution in 200 AD in Rome. And uh, I'm not talking about the persecution that we kind of face today, right? Where if you, you share your faith with somebody, and they kind of back away and roll their eyes. Like, that's not the level of persecution they had. Or, you know, they cut your summer job funding. That's not the level of persecution they had. This was the sort of persecution where we can't let anybody know that we're down here. And uh, for an example, uh, Nero Caesar, for example, he was, had a custom of using Christians as human torches because he blamed them for the great fire of 64 AD. So he would actually lock Christians in cages and set them ablaze and use them to light his palace. Or Marcus Aurelius, who in 161 AD actually made being a Christian illegal. He criminalized it, and then from that, all forms of uh, um, prosecution and torture would follow And this is the time where we actually had Christians fighting in the Colosseum against lions, for example. And so, see, this secret early church would not have had a banner like this because we do loud could have meant we're getting arrested. And uh, I I just realized they pointed to to a banner that if you're listening online, you can't see it. Um, But if you are listening online, welcome. But it's probably time you made your way to uh, to Kingsway. And so um, if you have a chance, you need to come by. If you live far away, if you live out of province, then maybe your summer vacation plans need to include Balmoral. Um, It's a beautiful part of the world. In fact, if you're coming from a great distance, you can stay with the Vanderwerks. Um, (laughs) They don't mind. And uh, their email and phone number is on the website, so you can connect with them directly. But back to this banner, it took me a great deal of research and uh, tons of hours on the Google but I was able to find a copy of the banner that that secret church would have had. And so here it is. And I, again, because some people are online, I'll just do it. Uh, basically, we say things like this. We do quiet because no one can know we're down here. And we don't like visitors because strangers often meant danger. We take the long way to church just to make sure no one's following us. We do secret passwords at the door. We really have no use for a tax receipt. I don't think if you went to the Roman government at that time and said, I'm a Christian and I've been donating to the cause, could I get a tax break? They would have listened. Um, Generally, we do living by faith because we don't have any other choices. I mean, this was a time when the phrase faithful unto death uh, became popular. This idea that if you were not willing to renounce Christianity, um, you were usually uh, um, put to death. And so as we can literally dig down through the layers of these previous churches from the grand, beautiful version we have today to a much smaller version to an underground secret version, um, we can do, I think we can do the same thing with kind of what Christianity has become, this idea that uh, this movement from a simple, powerful church um, who absolutely knew how to do what Andy Stanley would say, keep the main thing the main thing. When you were down in that church, you were there for a very specific reason. And uh, if that insight into archaeology doesn't do it for you, how about a little um, municipal governance? You probably would uh, like that better. So I don't know if you saw this in the paper a few weeks ago, uh, but the city of Hamilton is going to review all of their bylaws and laws regarding parks. And so since Hamilton became a city in 1846, they've developed 525 bylaws so that govern what happens when you're in a park. And year after year, they add more and they add more, but they kind of never take any away. They just kind of keep building up. So here's a few of my favorites. If you are caught removing boulders with a crane, that will cost you $200. (laughs) If you keep your livestock in a city park, that's going to cost you $100. If you tether a helicopter, 
I, I Googled it. I still don't know what it means. But if you do it, 200 bucks. One of my favorites. If you release balloons more than nine in any 24-hour period, uh, that's a $75 fine. And finally, if you kill or otherwise disturb a worm, that is a $75 fine. And that is, that is real. I, I was going to make some ridiculous ones up, but I didn't need to. They were already there. <laughs> I can only assume that these bylaws were created for a reason. Uh, but at some point, it's, they seem a little hard to understand. Like, what, what is it about the nine balloons that are okay, but that tenth balloon is just unacceptable? And so, as we look at these 525 laws, uh, we begin to realize that at some point, they may have lost their focus. The idea of the parks was not to become a place where bylaw enforcement officers could meet their quota of tickets every day. It was meant as a place where people could go and enjoy these public green spaces. And I'm not even suggesting that any of these laws are wrong. I don't want to go to the park and have to step among all the cow pies or see somebody with a crane stealing a boulder or watch people torturing and kidnapping worms. But it seems like maybe these rules have gotten in the way of what was the main intention, the main thing, and that was that people could just have a good time at the park. And so the city of Hamilton is going to review all of these and try to come up with some larger, broader laws or bylaws that kind of cover the main thing that they want to do. Because as people, we tend to complicate things. I mean, if you want to go for a walk in the park, that's fine. But there's 525 things you need to think about before you head out. And I wonder if, just like that church in San Clemente, that have covered over some of the best bits of their, their church with newer and grander versions, that if as Christians, we tend to do that with levels of complexity to our faith. And you see, in 2,000 years, Christianity has grown from a secret basement churches to these magnificent cathedrals and these megachurches that seat tens of thousands, and, and from a collection of documents and letters that have been split up between hundreds of different people to hundreds of different translations with an estimated 3.9 billion copies in circulation now. And by the way, in Canada, to, to put a best, uh, bestseller sticker on your book, you have to sell 5,000 copies. And so that means the Bible is a bestseller 780,000 times over. So in thinking about these 525 bylaws, um, I couldn't believe how many there were, but then I did a little research. I found out that there's actually 613 different laws and commandments in the Old Testament, 613, and we all know 10 of them, right? Do, do we know 10 of them? Shall I test you to see if you know 10 of them? Everybody's nodding their head yes, so let's, let's try it. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to have we're just going to go back and forth, and if either side can't come up with one of the Ten Commandments, the other side's going to win. So starting on this side, what's one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shall not kill. Thank you for saying shall not. Last night we had a huge issue with people just saying the key words. So people were like, murder. I'm like, are we for or against that? I'm not sure which we're going. So over here, what's one of the Ten Commandments? All right. No other gods before me. Nice. I won't. Thank you. Um, good tip. Yeah. Obey your mother and father. That's a good one. Nice. Uh, Sabbath. Over here? Steal? Yeah, no stealing. That's good. Covet, right? Covet all sorts of stuff. We don't need the list, but don't covet stuff. Nice. No lying. That's it. You've, oh, you've got your four. You've got your four. What's left? 
Oh, nailed it. Five for five. This is a tough one. This is like Family Feud where it's like you did all the answers and then someone's going to steal it. What's the last one? No idols. Right. Put up your hand if you have the list sitting in front of you. Maybe. Couple. All right. That's good. We know 10. Fantastic. All right. So let's play another game. Let's do the other 603. We'll start on this side. All right. 613. And so I don't think it's that surprising when one day uh, someone walked up to Jesus and said, there are so many rules. Which one is the most important? And uh, when asked this, Jesus chose to simplify. Jesus knew all 613, but Jesus chose to simplify. And to be honest, the person asking the question really wasn't looking for an answer. He was kind of looking for trouble. But we're going to pick it up there. So in Mark 12, starting in verse 28, we're going to read about a conversation Jesus has with someone. It says this, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbors yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and with all my understanding and with all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required of the law. Realizing how much this man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him, any more questions? Well, that's a teacher's dream, an answer so good that they have no follow-up <laughs> questions, and it's probably a pastor's dream as well. But it didn't say that nobody had any more questions. They were just afraid to ask. See, at first glance, it almost sounds like Jesus is complimenting this religious leader because, he said, because Jesus says to him that he have a great deal of understanding, but understanding wasn't enough. Being not far from the kingdom of God is not the same as being a part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, in his answer, was quoting Deuteronomy 6. And this was a very well-known piece of scripture as it was part of the Jewish Shema uh, or the morning prayers they would do. And so when Jesus gave this answer, there was a reason why the Sadducee liked it so much. It's because he, Jesus was agreeing with them. That was the answer that all the religious leaders all thought was correct, but they were hoping to trap Jesus. But then Jesus continued, and he said to this man, because you know this and you understand this, you're actually getting close. But knowing is not enough. You need to do it. You need to live it every day. And suddenly no one had anything else to say because Jesus had just dismissed them with that comment. And although it was a trick question laid out by that religious leader, it wasn't a trick answer. It was a truth because Jesus says it was. And so Jesus took those 613 Jewish laws and customs and he simplified and modernized it for us all in one statement. And I don't want to gloss over the second half there, the love your neighbor as yourself, but that'll have to be a topic for another time. Uh, today, we will look at this greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But when we look at the context of Deuteronomy 6, we can see that there is a connection here to loving and obeying. I, I bought this Bible the first day I attended Bible college. It's got duct tape on it now, but I bought this in 1991. And I remember the first day of class in the Old Testament studies, our teacher said, here's your homework. He said, read through the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and I want you to take note any time you see any of the four major themes of the Old Testament. 
So he told us what they were. He said, judgment, covenant, sacrifice, and obedience. So uh, we did that. And later in the semester, he said, I have a second assignment for you. Reread the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and make note in a different color every time we see the theme of love. And so what he was teaching us was that to understand any of these themes, you had to see them all together. And so we talked about how covenant is intertwined with things like judgment and sacrifice and how important it was that we make that connection. But the key he said to understand the Old Testament was the connection between love and obedience. Because every time that Israel was called to obedience, a reason was given, and that reason was love. And it was exactly what we, we, they were talking about in Deuteronomy 6, love and obedience. They're two things that can't be separated. If you love God, and you, you will keep his commandments. If you love him, you will obey him. Love and obedience were inseparable. And so I want to read the three verses in Deuteronomy 6 that precede what Jesus just quoted. And so we'll start in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 6. It says, now this is the commandment. And he'd just been talking about the Ten Commandments. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them, which means obey, in the land which you are crossing over to possess. And you may fear the Lord your God to keep or obey all of his statutes and his commandments. When I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that you, that, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it or obey it, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God uh, of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, and this is the quote Jesus used in Mark, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Well, what I want to notice here, and we'll come back to this in a minute, the reason why God wants us to obey is very straightforward. It's in verse, and it's in verse 2, and it's in verse 3. The reason he wants us to obey is that it's for our benefit. He says, so that your days will be prolonged, so that it may be well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land of milk and honey. But here's the problem with the connection between love and obedience for, the, for these religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Sadducees focused on the obeying part, not on the loving part. Obeying the law by scrutinizing and studying, by analyzing and memorizing these 613 commandments uh, that were found in the Old Testament, they got really good at it. They weren't perfect, but they were really good at it. But they didn't obey God because they loved him. They obeyed God instead of loving him. They had substituted legalistic rule following, rule following for the sake, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, in place of loving him. And so every morning, all of these religious elite in Israel would get out of bed, and they would extend their arms in prayer and recite Deuteronomy 6, but they missed it. They said it, but they didn't really hear it. And the Pharisees were masters at this game. They had rules that said how much weight you could carry on the Sabbath before it was considered to be carrying a burden. They had rules about how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before it was considered work. But for a legalist, these rules are important because you have to be able to make a distinction between good enough and not good enough. But that's why Jesus doesn't want us to be simply rule followers. But what God wants, and that's, that's not what God wants, and that's not what Jesus said, uh, was the greatest commandment. He could have picked obedience from verse 2. He could have picked any of those 613 and said, this is the most important one, but he didn't. He chose something different. So if you love him, you will do all of these things, and you will do them gladly. St. Augustine, notice the hair. Uh, he's often credited with saying this, love God and do as you please. 
Now, the problem is that he didn't actually say that, and what he did say wasn't actually referring to what we're talking about tonight. But I, I wonder why he's so often misquoted in this context, and I think I understand it. It's because there's something there. And it kind of sounds kind of dangerous to say in church, right? But I understand what people mean by this. Because if you love God, not just if you say you do, but if you truly love him, you'll want to do his will. You will seek his will. You will seek him out. You will want to sh him to show you his ways because you will trust that his ways are the best possible thing for you. Psalm 37, 4 says this, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that if you love God, he will give you whatever you want. It means that if you love God, he will put a desire for himself in your heart. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Everybody involved in this conversation would have remembered this because it happened just a day or two before. In fact, you only have to flip back from Mark 12, where we've been reading, to Mark 10 to hear it. But the story goes like this. A very wealthy young man had come up to Jesus and dropped to his knees and asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him that he had to keep the commandments. And then he listed a few. He said, don't murder, don't steal, don't, uh, don't defraud, don't commit adultery, don't give false testimony, honor your mother and father. You recognize the list, don't you? It's six of the Ten Commandments. And so the young man's getting excited now. And he says, I've done all of these things. And to which Jesus says, well, there's just one more thing. That rings a bell, doesn't it? What did Jesus say to the Sadducee in Mark 12? You are not far from the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven. And now we see in this young man, there's just one more thing. And so we can pick it up there in Mark 10, verse 21. It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. So many people read this and think this is about money, but I don't think it is. If it was, then why didn't Jesus say this to everyone he spoke to? Why didn't Jesus say that the greatest commandment of all was to sell your possessions and give it to the poor? He didn't. What Jesus was saying was that he wanted, what he wanted from this young man was that he wanted him to love God more than he loved money. Because we saw the young man walk away dejected, realizing what it was being asked of him. Mark 6, 24 says, um, tells us that we can't have two number one things in our lives. We can't, have, we can't love our, our, God, our Lord, our God, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and equally love money. You can only have one main thing. But as I said, that was the truth for this young man. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the truth for us? Maybe it is money. Maybe it's something else. But the answer most likely is different for each one of us. But it can probably be summarized as love of self. So how do we learn to love God? I mean, it's great if you wake up every day, jump out of bed with an overwhelming love and appreciation for God, but what if you don't? What if that's not there someday? So I think there's two parts to that question. Um, do you have trouble loving God, or do you have trouble maintaining your focus on God? In other words, is it, not, is it with the all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is that the part that you find difficult? But at risk of oversimplifying, I think we can answer the first part um, very easily because it's found in 1 John. 1 John 4, 19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. And if we take the time to read God, God's word, to seek his face in prayer, to better understand who he is and how he feels about us, to worship him, and then our love for him will grow because he first loved us. If we can comprehend what God has done for us, we can't help but love him. Sometimes these things are called spiritual disciplines, though. You know, reading the Bible, praying. Have you ever heard that name, spiritual disciplines? I hate that name. It makes it sound like it's a chore. It makes it sound like something nobody wants to do. And I always use the example about perspective. Uh, I always use the example of video games. 
If I asked my wife to go down to the basement and play Xbox for 12 straight hours, she couldn't do it. She absolutely couldn't. She would lose her mind. She'd complain. She'd probably climb out the window. I'd never see her again. She hates video games, and she hates spending time in the basement. But there are teenagers in basements across Canada right now playing on those Xboxes. Are they more disciplined than her? No, I need an answer. Are they more? No. I would say no. But that's what they desire to do. It's not, it's not something that's a challenge for them. It's something they hope that after 12 hours, their parents have forgotten they're down there and they can stay for another 12. And so when we seek God's face, when we allow him to change us, our desires begin to parallel his. So love God and do as you please makes sense at a certain level because what you please is to please him. But I think the harder thing, and what most people would say, especially if they're sitting in church, is that the harder part is to stay focused, to be able to say that it's everything about them that they love God with. And because there's times in, in uh, everyone's life, and I'm, no, I'm definitely no exception, where, you know, it's easy to focus on God. Your heart just naturally goes there. But there's also times where everything else seems to get in the way, that loving God becomes something you do if and when you have the time, when the main thing is suddenly not the main thing. So let's see if we can find that answer together. And I, I want to take a look at someone from the Old Testament who I think um, would receive a gold medal for having laser focus on the things of God. And his name is Nehemiah. So while you're desperately searching for Nehemiah in your Bibles, uh, let me give you some backstory. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And what that means is that he was basically the personal waiter for the king. And although it doesn't seem like a, an important job, it was a very high-profile job. And the king, though, was not his king. The king was the son of the man who had destroyed Jerusalem and taken him captive. You see, he was a slave to the son of the king who had done this. But he served him. And so 70 years after Jerusalem had been destroyed, and again, Nehemiah wasn't even born back then, and about 800 miles away, we find Nehemiah serving the king. Now, the Bible tells us that Nehemiah gets a burden. And I can best define a burden as just this concern or this, this thought that God's put in your head that you can't get past. You can't, you can put it aside for a bit and it keeps coming back. You try to ignore it, but you just can't. And so he gives him this burden. And what his burden is, is that he wants him to go back to Jerusalem to somehow leave the service of his, um, of his master, head back the 800 miles to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. You see, as part of the um, destruction of Jerusalem the 70 years before, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed most of the city. They knocked down the walls that are around the city that protect the city from other attack. And over the course of the last 70 years, uh, people called the remnant had been moving their way back in, and they were fixing the temple, and they had rebuilt much of the city, but the walls remained um, in disrepair. And so Jerusalem sat there, um, something that could easily be destroyed by any um, army that came by. And so Nehemiah asked his king, uh, if he can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the, law, the walls. And this is all happening about 404, 444 B.C. And for some strange reason, uh, the king says, sure, and he lets him go. And so he gets to work. He's leading hundreds of workers. People are not getting along. There's tons of setbacks, but Nehemiah keeps working. And while he's doing this, there's other leaders in Jerusalem that are trying to stop him. They don't want the walls rebuilt. They like things just the way they are. And the main bad guy here is a, a man named Samballot. And he's trying to kill Nehemiah, and he's trying to sabotage his work, and he's trying to ruin his reputation so people will stop following him and working on the wall. But none of it seems to work. And despite all of these distractions, Nehemiah just keeps building the wall. And so in Nehemiah 6, 
we see this last-ditch effort to stop Nehemiah and his work that God ordained him to do. And so Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now it happened when Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the walls and that there were no breaks left in it, although at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Samballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease when I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me that message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. I want you to picture Nehemiah up a ladder fixing the wall. Now, I'll be honest with you. When they say come down, they probably mean come down south, not come down the ladder. But for me, I just picture him up the ladder. He's fixing the wall. And time and time again, the message comes to Nehemiah saying, you got to come, you got to come, you got to come. This is important stuff. And time and time again, Nehemiah, it says, he answered them in the same manner, saying, I cannot, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. And so Nehemiah's decision-making is easy. Anything that helped get the wall built was a yes, and anything that slowed him down was a no. See, once Nehemiah knew what God wanted from him, he just had one job left to do it. If ever there was a guy who knew how to keep the main thing the main thing, it was Nehemiah. And so Jesus shows us there is one commandment that needs to be our focus. And anything that gets in the way of that one focus is something we need to be able to put aside. So let's, maybe we can say it together, because I just love saying it. Maybe it's kind of fun to do. I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. We'll try that again. I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. He didn't just say no. He said, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. You know, I think we're really fortunate that Jesus chose to simplify all of this for us. And kind of like digging down through layers of Christianity, like the layers of the Church of San Clemente, or all those bylaws and, and rules that the city of Hamilton have put into place, we're able to define what the main thing is. Jesus cut through everything else to show us what the main thing is, to love God. Because we need to find a way to make the main thing the main thing. Always. Because we don't need to figure out what the main thing is. Jesus has done that for us. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I don't think anyone here wakes up in the morning thinking that today I'm going to love the Lord my God marginally. Or today my relationship with God is going to be, eh. I think what we want to do is we want to be able to say that we're not good at the greatest commandment, that we're great at the greatest commandment. Can I pray with you guys? Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for just the Kingsway family, Lord, uh, people who are just uh, looking upward, looking, looking to you, Lord. And we know that... Uh, it's, it's as easy and it's as difficult as just saying we just need to love you more. That, uh, that as we sing songs uh, at worship here, and it talks about how much we love you and all you've done for us. We just need to take that to heart, Lord, and just realize that the, 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 the focus of our relationship with you is our love for you. We never have an opportunity to question if you love us, Lord, but I wonder sometimes if, if you must be left questioning. And I just want to be able to say, Lord, that, uh, that my focus is you that you deserve the glory, you deserve everything that about me that, it, that is good is from you, and we just want to be able to do that together. I just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and I just thank you for, uh, for blessing us the way that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.